before Pastor Don Thomas comes to bring God's word, let us read John 19 and part of John 20. The Gospel of John chapter 19. Uh, though he is going to preach on verse uh, 30, it's necessary that we grasp the context. Uh, John 19, verse 1 to chapter 20 and verse 10. Please hear the word of God. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his hand, arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You'd have no authority of me at all unless it, has been, it had been given you from above. Therefore, he would deliver me over to you as the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. The Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king, cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of, of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, They're not right, the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I've written, I've written. 
When the soldiers uncrucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. They said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But starting by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a high soap branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his hand and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of, of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came, took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. But about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bowed it in linen clothes with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And the disciples went back to their homes. There goes a reading of God's word. Pastor John, please come and bear the good news of the resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. Thank you for letting us do that again. You know, Mary and I are just glad to be with you. What a privilege, what an honor it is to be able to open up God's Word with all of you on this Resurrection Day, a very special Lord's Day. You know, I wanted to, before we get too far, is to extend some greetings uh, from the other side of the world. Uh, I want to extend some greetings from uh, Redeeming Grace Church in Cody, Wyoming. We're a new church plant there. We've been there a couple years and uh, just had a very close communion with, with your, your congregation. And, and our elders, our church, just greet you this Lord's Day. There's another church about 90 miles from our church. It's called Sovereign Grace Bible Church. And uh, they also pray for you regularly and, and they extend their greetings to you as well. You know, I invite you today, if you would, to open up your Bibles to John chapter 19, where Pastor Morungi just read. And before we look too deeply into the Word of God, let's just bow our heads and ask for His help. Father, we do thank You for this Resurrection Sunday. Lord, we realize that every Lord's Day is, is Easter, so to speak. Every Lord's Day, we celebrate and remember a Savior did not stay on the cross or in the grave, who was raised victoriously on the third day. Lord, it's the power of the resurrection that, uh, that is unleashed in the hearts of those you're saving, and it's our eternal hope that one day we too will be raised from the dead. We pray, Father, that you would just open your word today and bring understanding to all of our hearts. I pray you'd even help me in the preaching as Pastor Morungi prayed to, to make clear your word and to make clear your gospel. I pray, Father, that uh, you would uh, be open and, 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 to, and extend your love in a very special way to anyone or those here in our midst that are outside the pale of grace. Could it be that there's someone here who has yet to experience firsthand the love, the forgiveness, the eternal life, the joy that comes from being saved? Lord, I pray that your spirit would unfold those hearts to receive the good news. Would you bring understanding? Would you work in the hearts to bring faith? Lord, that, that just as faith shared her faith, Lord, there might be others that would share their faith in the days ahead. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, you might be surprised that uh, here it is on Resurrection Sunday. And we're not turning to chapter 20, we're turning to chapter 19 today. 
In fact, the very, the very end there, verse 30 of chapter 9, I'm sorry. And chapter uh, 19, we see Jesus on the cross. And this is what? This is resurrection day. This is before he died. We're going to look at the verse, verse 30. This is before he was buried. This is really Good Friday that we're looking at here in verse 30. But I want you to see, and hopefully you can see how this is going to tie in so wonderfully to what we know is going to happen as we took, took a peek into chapter 20. That is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the victory of the cross. You know, our house is a little unusual uh, back in Wyoming. Uh, we have a wall in the house that, uh, it's a big wall, big, big plain wall that you see when you enter in right away. And we wanted to, Mary and I wanted to put some decorative piece on there, but the wall's so big that a picture would look too small. And we also wanted a decorative piece that might communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to anyone who came into our home. So we prayed about it and thought about it, and what we ended up doing is we had built a, a sign of wood out of an old barn. And the sign is six foot wide and a little about an inch or two taller than I am, square, six by six. And the letters on it are about six to eight inches in white paint. And across the top of the sign, it says Testelestai. And then right, right below that, it says John 19. That's all it says. And so it sits up on the wall in our house. And you say, well, why would you do that? Well, we were hoping, our prayer was, that visitors would come into our home. And they would see a strange word up there to tell us die. And they'd wonder, and they'd ask us, what does that mean? And then we could say, well, that's a Greek word. And it means that it is finished. And then we would hope they would say, well, what's finished? Are you working on your house or what is it? Why, what's finished? And then we could go in and say, no, these are some of the last words of Christ on the cross. And then we could go into the gospel with them and tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that was our plan. That was our prayer. That was our desire. A couple of years ago, when we had the sign built. Sadly, or surprisingly, actually, to us, there's only been about two guests that have ever asked us what that, that word meant, testelestai. And I don't know why. Unless they're embarrassed, they don't know how to pronounce it, so they just look at it and think it's strange. But, uh, but there have been a couple, you know, that have asked, what does testelestai mean? Um, if I could, I would have brought it here to uh, Kenya. But they wouldn't let me put a six-foot-six sign on an airplane. And if they did, we probably couldn't afford it anyway. But uh, what I'd like to do today is bring you the message of that sign. Can't bring the wood sign, but I can bring you the words from that sign and also encourage you with the gospel, the resurrection gospel of Jesus Christ. When you think of our Lord on the cross, you think of him suffering, you think of him, you think of spikes being driven into his hands, and you think about the spear we just saw about driven into his side. 
And so you, you see him suffering on the cross, agonizing, uh, awaiting to give up his life at death. But what you don't realize as much, I think, is that Jesus spoke on the cross. He just didn't get nailed to the cross and then die. There were messages coming off of his lips from the cross. And I think they're instructive for us. Every word that comes off the mouth of our Lord is important. And there are specific messages and specific people, and, and I'm going to just share them with you. You know, for example, the first one was uh, to the soldiers that were down below. Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they do. And then we have uh, the believing thief on the cross. Remember the believing thief on the cross. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Uh, I have John and his mother Mary, and he's commending uh, Mary over to, to John for care. And woman, behold thy son. These are all words spoken from the cross by the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, we see that Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As he begins to experience the wrath and the separation with his heavenly Father. Now, the following words, we just read here at the beginning of or verse 28. We see that his suffering. Now he's shifting, and the words that are coming off of his lips are words of suffering. But then the words of suffering are going to immediately turn to words of victory, one right after the other. So he says, we read just a minute ago, he said, I thirst. I want to show you in just a minute that that's just not that he was thirsty. Give me something to drink. We're going to see that's, that's an expression of suffering on the cross. And then right after that, he says, it is finished. The victory cry that came from, from the cross. And, of course, then the last statement was from the cross, the lips of our Lord, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Those are the words from Jesus on the cross. You know, these last three words, I thirst, it is finished, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Uh, the, these are words that are spoke uh, by a man. But it was also spoke by Jesus Christ. I want to ask you a question before we go too much further. When you think of the Savior on the cross, do you think of him as a man, just an ordinary man on the cross that's dying, who's being executed? Or do you see him as God on the cross, the deity on the cross, the second person of the Trinity on the cross? You know, there's those who see one more of one and more of the other. And I think we're going to really experience what's happening on the cross. The words that are being spoken, we have to bring our minds to remember that it's the God-man that's on the cross. There's the humanity of Jesus Christ on the cross. There's the deity of Christ on the cross. And this union, this hypostatic union of God and man, it, it is on display and bearing the wrath of the Father and accomplishing the very salvation 
that was planned before the foundation of the world for a people who were foreloved before the foundation of the world. So you see both. You know, at the end, we end up missing much if we see just man, or we end up missing much if we see more God. But it's that great union of both. The greatest blessing that flows to you and to me, I want us to listen to, first of all, his suffering, my thirst. But then I want you to see how that turns into the victory that he, that he speaks when he says, it is finished. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Uh, you know, we talked yesterday about uh, how you want to ask questions when you're looking at Scripture. And uh, one of the questions you might ask is, uh, after this, after what? After what? Well, he just commended, you know, Mary was just commended to John. We know that uh, from the Gospel records that following Jesus uh, commending his mother to John and the other Gospel accounts, um, we are we are now in the third hour of darkness. Fell across the cross, and during these three hours, more than likely, our Lord cried out to His Father in Matthew twenty seven forty six. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani?" That is to say, "My Lord, my God, and my God, why hast thou forsaken me?" So that came at the, at the last three hours. And after this, see, that, there's the after this. After it said that, after this, knowing that all things were finished. So how do we understand this verse? You know, Jesus, knowing the hour, he actually knows the hour that he's going to die on the cross. He knew he was going to the cross, but he also knew the hour that he was going to die on the cross. In fact, he didn't only know the, the hour he died on the cross. He chose the moment he would die on the cross. It was perfectly in his hands. Everything that was needed for salvation uh, to take place prior to his death had taken place. For all practical purposes, from Christ's vantage point, everything was now accomplished except for one more thing. And when he said that, what, what one more thing do you know that needed to be to take place? It would be his death. He had to die. And then we're going to see there's actually another thing that had to take place. He had to be raised from the dead. Uh, it's unusual for any criminal to, uh, to die so soon on the cross as Jesus did. We know he was crucified about 9 a.m. in the morning. We know that he died about 3 in the afternoon. So it was at six hours on the on the on the on the cross, and then we ask, well, why, why is it he died so quickly? Most criminals on the cross that were being executed would be there two days, three days. That was normal. Six hours, Jesus was dead. And there, 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 of course, the Bible doesn't give us direct answers to that, but I think the main point is that. Christ was going to die on his timetable. He was going to choose the moment when he was going to offer himself up 
for the Father. We remember back in John 10, 18, that no one takes it from me, but if, it, if I lay it down, that's his life, on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. So at any moment, I, I, I choose when I die. In other words, the next moment, when the soul of Christ would be separated from his earthly body, Christ had determined when that would happen. It was his will to die the same day that he was crucified. It was his will to die at three in the afternoon, and six hours after his execution. So therefore, with this context, you might read this passage like this. After this, Jesus, knowing in his own mind that all things were now practically accomplished, which he came into the world to do, and knowing that it was expedient that his death should be a most public event in the face of crowds assembled for the view of the crucifixion, he proceeded to say in his last words, which he intended to say before giving up his ghost at 3 p.m. and saying them to fulfill prophecy. That's the context. That, 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 that's the backdrop of him saying, it is finished. There was even a prophecy that needed to be fulfilled. We see at the beginning here in verse 28, where he said, Jesus said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. This is right before he died. And Jesus, I don't believe, is uttering this, saying, okay, now how many more Scriptures do I have to fulfill uh, before I die? Oh, I better have some water and have some water. It's not like that. Uh, there's a reason why he had water, and he took water. We're going to explain that in just a second. But what we see here is, is that in so doing, he was actually fulfilling Scripture. Psalm 69.21 says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Every, think of Christ on the cross. Every breath he was taking. Do you realize that the execution on the cross is an execution by suffocation. It's not by bleeding to death. You're, you're hanging there uh, by the weight of, of, of your body, and then your weight of your body is pushing down on your diaphragm. And the longer you hang there, the shorter your breaths get until finally you can't breathe anymore, and then you die. He was suffering on the cross, the pangs of thirst. He felt the burning, consuming thirst. Public anguish that he was going through. But I was thinking about just saying, I thirst. At that point in the crucifixion, would have taken everything that was within him to speak those words. He didn't have much breath left. And by the time he says it is finished, there's hardly any breath left at all, but we're going to see how those words came out of his mouth in a minute. Here's the point. The cross was a place of physical suffering, a place of agony, and the thirst was really an expression of the anguish he was feeling from the suffering that was coming from being crushed by the Father. 
the hell that we deserve to go to. Uh, he was experiencing what it would mean to spend eternity in hell uh, as he took our judgment for, for us, his people. And we look to scripture, we see the eternal place of punishment, the experience of eternal agony. Hell itself is going to be a thirsty place. You don't want to go there. Lazarus, when he left this earth, and the rich man, uh, we, we remember that the uh, rich man, it says in Luke 16, 23, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus as at his side. And as he called out, he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send me Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And so for our Lord to even say that uh, I, I thirst, he's expressing that he's taking on the anguish, the judgment of the Father that we see expressed in Luke 16. And by the way, the, our Lord experienced that temporarily on the cross, but those who, who are without Christ, that thirst will be there for all eternity. There's no end. So behold, our, our Lord now suffering uh, for the sins of his people, crying from the cross, I thirst. But I read one commentator who said, Christ suffered thirst that we might drink the water of life forever and thirst no more. I think really wise words. Uh, then John adds well that there was a jar nearby the, of sour wine. And as an act of mercy, verse 29, now there were sent a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar, and they, they, they put it up upon hyssop, up to his mouth, and he was able to have just a little bit of nourishment. You know, I know just that little bit, it goes a long ways when you're parched. But if you've been in the hospital with someone who, who hasn't been able to drink, and, and, and they're dehydrating, and, and their, their, their mouth is dry, and, and just to give them a little something, put on their lips, just to kind of generate a little bit of liquid, and, and a little bit of, uh, of alleviating the thirst is a great blessing. And so we see that now there was a vessel, and some soldiers came along. They, they dipped into a, in, into a sponge the, the sour wine. The hyssop was a, a reed that they would raise up to the very lips of Christ. And it was just able to whet his appetite, so to speak, on the cross. The hyssop, the, the, the reed, was uh, a woody stalk, sufficient, firm, long enough to raise right up to the lips of Jesus. So now, that's the suffering part of the verse, verse 28. The suffering on the cross, I, I thirst. But he goes to the next words that come out of our Lord's lips right before he dies, is it is finished. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. It is finished. The telestai. One word in the Greek, we have a couple words in the English, it is finished, three words, uh, but it, it is finished. You know, we see how important uh, the text is to understanding this. You know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, tell us that there was a loud cry 
that came from the cross. And I believe that loud cry at the very end was the loud cry of Testelestai. He didn't, he was, I know he's, 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 he's seconds, minutes away from dying. And he's suffocating. And he's, it's hard to believe that the last words that might come out of his mouth would be with a, with a loud voice, but mustering up within his flesh, within his human, human flesh, empowered by his deity, he was able to broadcast from that cross, it is finished with authority. God was speaking. It is finished. Maybe he mustered up all the last energy that was left in his human body. I know that uh, onlookers, they didn't know what he was talking about. Here's a man dying on a cross being executed and it's finished. They didn't know what he meant. I mean, I'm sure they probably thought it was, these were words of resignation. I guess this is it. Uh, you know, euphemism in America, the jig's up. I give up. You know, I'm and die. But that's not what was being communicated on the cross. The word itself, to Telestai, it is finished. Uh, literally means it has been completed. You know, it's a perfect tense. It's, it's something that's been done. One, one word loudly proclaimed from the cross, it is finished. And it's, it's a word that's really pregnant with, with meaning. It's full word. The Greeks would use it in, in their, in their finance, financial world, world to write off a debt. They would just stamp it and say, paid in full. You owed, owed some money, you paid it off, stamp it down. Paid in full. That's how the word was used in secular Greek. And, and that's the essence of what our, our Lord is saying. It's finished. It's paid in full. What I've come to accomplish. And here's the thing. God has given each of us believers all of eternity to try and mine the depth of what those words mean and to praise God for them. I don't, I, I don't, I'm trying to communicate as best I can with human words and human reasoning what this word, it is finished, means. But it is so much more deeper than I'm able to express. It goes to the heart of everything God has done and his motives. And I believe we have eternity, all eternity, to try and know, and God revealing to us perhaps more and more what it meant for Christ to say, it is finished. I don't think any of us can say, I got it, I understand. Let's see if we can pull back a little bit as some of the layers of understanding, the context of this, this, this statement of Christ in the, in, in the arena of redemptive history. You cannot understand it is finished unless you also understand uh, the sin that took place in Genesis chapter 3. So if you're going to understand John uh, chapter 19 verse 30, it is finished. It makes absolutely no sense unless you see the fall of mankind back in Genesis chapter 3. Or unless you go through the opening chapters of the book of Romans and see that uh, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. We're all under the wrath of God. So this is, we, we must first understand that, or it is finished, has absolutely no meaning to us. 
Ezekiel 18.4, Behold, all souls are mine, the soul of the fathers as well as the soul of the son. It is mine. The soul whose sins shall die. We have to know that. We're going to understand it is finished. And then you have from Genesis 3 all the way through the Old, Old Testament. You have the prophets of old foretelling of a coming Messiah. And the Messiah, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's full of shadows and types and leading up to the coming of Christ. Chapter by chapter, if you read through the book of John, is, is the ministry of Christ, step by step by step, leading up to Him saying the words, It is finished. It's like the clock is ticking. Tick, 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 and it began to tick clear back and Genesis 3, and it ticks all the way through every book historically of the Old Testament. It ticks all the way up through the book of John and the life of Christ. And it's ticking away in, in chapter 18. And it ticks halfway through chapter 19. And then all of a sudden, the ticking stops at this verse when Christ says, okay, now it is finished. God has given each of us believers all eternity to mind the depths of those words. And you realize that he's in control of everything, don't you? And don't you realize that he's in control of, of what's going on in this cross? He's no victim here. This is a plan. He's carrying the plan out. This is a plan. He knows what he's doing. He knows what the time of his death will be because he's chosen it. You say, well, how do we know that? Because every time... Someone tried to take the life of Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. Uh, we see that he says, well, the time has not yet come. John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. I've come to this hour at this time. The days come. The, the, year, the hours come. And now the minutes have come. And now I say, it is finished. And the death of Christ is more than a physical death. Do you realize that? His death isn't, well, Jesus died and he, that was it. His death carries much more significance than he just physically uh, departed from this world. A lot of people do that. You lost one of your brothers from, from this church, even this, this week. We, we, we leave this world. We're all going to leave this planet. And, and it wasn't like he died just like we died. No, there was much more taking place there. He was there as the sin bearer, the sin substitute bearer, that he was going to pay the penalty for the sins of every one of his people. You know, we were at our conference uh, yesterday, the day before, those whom he foreloved, those whom he predestinated, that little flock that God chose before the foundation of the world, he came to be a sin offering for them and to die for them, that they might be redeemed and they might have peace and he might be the propitiation for their sin. And the days come and he says, it is finished. Now the next question you might want to ask yourself, what's finished? It's finished. Remember we talked about, for those of you who know we're here for the conference, whenever you see pronouns, you know, by the way, young people, uh, grammar's important. 
So study hard grammar because you'll understand your Bible better. But pronouns, he, she, it, you know, those are pronouns, they. And uh, it is finished. Whenever you see something like that in Scripture, a pronoun, you should ask yourself the question, what's the antecedent of the pronoun? What, is the re what does that refer to? What's the it? Who's the it? And so you have to figure the context to answer the question. What is, what is finish? Well, the work for which Christ came into this world to do, the death that he came to die, the one who came to seek and to save those who are lost, the chief work that he purposed to do with his substitutionary death on the cross, to die for a little, actually a big flock of God's people that the Father had given him. He says, for that work, it is finished. And uh, that should raise a couple more questions. How could it be finished? How was it finished? He hadn't died yet. How could it be finished? He hadn't, he hadn't been raised from the dead yet. I mean, you still see him suffering on the cross, still breathing, bearing the stripes of his heavenly Father, thirsting, shedding his blood. But when, he, when you see that, brothers and sisters in Christ, you see God taking on your sin. He's, that's your sin that he's agonizing for and bearing the punishment for. He's being crushed so that you won't be crushed. He's being, the wrath of God is being poured out on him so the, God, the wrath will not be poured out on you. He's purchasing peace between you and God. If you have peace today, that peace was being purchased at that moment. That substitutionary sacrifice of Christ is finished. His blood was sufficient once and for all. One infinite substitute for his elect. You know, I don't want this uh, truth about uh, it is finished to be lost in a sea of big theological words. There are a lot of big theological words that describe what happened on the cross. And most of, a lot of us that are here today, we, we want to know what it says. You know, we don't know all the big theological words, but I do want to know what it says and what it means for me. I mean, we could talk about, you know, substitutionary atonement. We could talk about the hypostatic union. We could talk about uh, particular redemption. We could talk about justification by faith. We've already covered that. Uh, there's a lot of big words we could wrap our heads around and try and understand them. But do you realize how simple the words of Christ are from the cross when he isn't uttering those big words? They're important, but he's not uttering those words. He's uttering simple words. It is finished. I mean, you can't get any more simple than that. It's done. It's paid for. And I've done the work that I've been called to do. It is finished means that Christ took the wrath on your behalf. It is finished means that his death satisfied the anger of the Father against sinners for whom he came to die. Uh, I mean, he reconciled the enemies of God and brought them together to have peace with God. He made you one with God, church. 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us 
the ministry of reconciliation, we were, believers, listen carefully, we were slaves to sin. We were slaves to the devil. We were slaves to death. And he came and broke those chains. And when he said it's finished, it's all, it's all been paid for. You're free. That's good news. You're made one with God. The broken relationship now is, is we saw, you're in the adoption of the family of God. It's all God doing all the salvation, and it's all good. It is finished means the work is done. It never needs to be done again. Now, that's important, isn't it? When Christ said it is finished, no one, no thing needs to add to what Christ has done to improve it or make it better. His work was once and for all. Christ doesn't have to do anything more. You don't have to do anything to improve on what Christ has done. In fact, you can't because it's finished. You know, the hymn that we sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. And as far as the east is from the west, your sins are gone. Once and for all, it is finished. Now, I know that there was a temptation for many of us as, as Christians. I think it just goes back that we're that remnant of thought that we had in the old man that still lingers with us, even though we've been saved. We, we want to kind of somehow add to what Christ has done. Yeah, I'm saved by faith once and for all. It's finished. I'm forgiven. I understand that. But I really believe I need to pray a little bit more for God to love me. Or I need to go to church maybe more than I do. Or I need to serve in the church more than I do. And we want to we add to the words, it is finished, some of our own works. And all those things are good. There's nothing wrong. Obviously, we want to read our Bibles. Yes, yes, we want to go to church and, and we want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. But never to add something to what he's done to earn merit. But we do so out of kindness and grace and love and devotion to God. In 1504, Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci finished the last strokes of painting the Mona Lisa. And I was reading that when he put that last stroke on the Mona Lisa, he said verbally, it is finished. It was done. There was no more strokes. The master had finished his, his portrait, put in a frame. Now, can you imagine going to the Louvre there in, in Paris, taking out a Sharpie, a black Sharpie pen. Do you have Sharpie pens here? A black, dark, felt-type pen, yeah. You know, but you're going you're to improve on, on Leonardo a little bit. And so you go into the museum, and you had your pen out, and you, you want to put, she needs a mustache. So I'm going to add a little mustache on there. Or I don't like the way your hair is over here. Or put a little goatee on I, I don't know. But can you imagine what that would do to a perfect masterpiece? Thinking that you could improve on what Leonardo da Vinci did? I mean, that's a $100 million painting. 
When you got done with it, it'd be worth zero. And so it is spiritually. You know, you've been, it is finished. The work of Christ has done it all for you. That should be such good news. Don't take out your Sharpie pen and feel like you have to start adding to plus your own works to stay in favor with God. You're really diminishing all that Christ has done for you on the cross. Now, it's, tr it's true as he spoke these words, it wasn't really finished. He says it's finished, but there was still a little bit unfinished yet. We know that. You know, John Calvin writes, in this life, he spoke at the very end, knowing that all things were not particularly accomplished. Nothing left to hinder it. That was the key. He, he basically said all the work was done, but he says there was nothing left to hinder it from being finished. So his last words, he could say, it is finished. And by the way, this is really good. If you look at your Bibles, he bowed his head. See that? It says, so uh, he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. It's that little detail that the Holy Spirit put in there when you pen this. It's, it's an interesting word in the Greek, uh, this bowed his head. It's like he literally pillowed his head. When you get the picture that he just laid, laid his head down. It, it wasn't a jerk, and then he died. His very will in giving up his life at the very moment he chose to give up his life, he just casually laid down his head, pillowed his head, and gave up the spirit right on time. Jesus had decided it's done, now I'll die. He bowed his head and gave up the spirit. In fact, John 10, 18 says, no one takes, takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so I can lay it down myself, but I also can raise it up again myself. Now, at this point, he's at the height of his pain, the height of his suffering, and his breath is almost gone. He's ready to die as he offers up himself. He says he bowed his head and gave up the spirit, gave up the ghost. He delivered up the spirit. He delivered up the ghost. By the way, this phrase is never used any place in the Bible to describe a person's death, giving up the spirit. We don't give up our spirit when we choose to give up our spirit. God is the one who has determined when our spirit is going to be offered up, when we die. And like the Lord, we don't know the day. We can't choose the day. We have our, you know, we, some of us have our timetable, but the Lord has his timetable. You know, maybe by the grace of God, some of you might get as old as I am. I don't know. Some of you might just live to be a few years old. Some of you might go on to a hundred. All this is in the hand of God, the one who gives life and the one who takes away life. Christ is the only one that offers up his own life 
is a sacrifice for others. And nothing can separate us from the love of God. So Christ isn't calling you to do any more than he did. He gave up the ghost. He died once and for all. Now, what happened to our Lord's soul when he gave up the ghost? You know, we have complete atonement taking place here. And what happened? He put his head down like a pillow on a pillow. Then he gave up the ghost. We know his spirit, his, his, his soul, we left his body. And do you remember what he told the thief on the cross? Today, you will be where? With me in paradise. So our Lord was planning on himself to be with be in paradise when he gave up the ghost. I lay down my life, I, take, I can take it up. Now, God has brought us into the hearing of the words of Christ from the cross, words of suffering, uh, I'm thirsty, uh, Lords of vict words of victory, it is finished. I mean, I just, all the hymns that come to my mind, I, I've been blessed by the hymns we've been singing uh, while here. Um, Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah! I mean, what a Savior! Lifted up was he to die. It is finished, was his cry. Drives home the truth that Jesus bore our infirmities. And he cries out, it is finished. Now, if, you, if you're a believer here today, and I assume many of you are here today as with faith in Christ. He's your Savior. He's your Lord. Let me ask you a question. Where is your sin today? Where's your sin of last week today? Where's your sin today that you committed today, even on Resurrection Sunday? You know, when, when, when our Lord says it is finished, do you believe in your heart that it is really finished? And your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And he's not calling you to do anything more to add to that forgiveness. I mean, as a pastor, I know that uh, we'll have people who see, they'll see it, not see him come to church for two, three, four weeks. You say, where have you been, brother? Where have you been, sister? And then I find out later that what it was is they were caught up in a grievous sin. They felt they weren't worthy to come back to church. Now, whenever you think that, or even are tempted to think that, what you're really saying is, I don't believe that Jesus Christ really meant what he said when he said, it is finished. I got I to gotta take out my black Sharpie, and I've got to start, put a plus sign, and do some things before I'm worthy to come back to church. That's wrong thinking. Your worth is based on what Christ has done. And yes, we're all sinners, and we're going to continue to sin, but we're forgiven by the grace of God. I know these are the last words of our Lord. He just died. This should be really a Good Friday message, right? Rather than a resurrection. We haven't even talked about the resurrection. A non-believer. And I'm looking out at a very, a very good crowd, a very nice assembly of, of people on this Resurrection Sunday. 
There well could be some of you here today that would not identify yourselves as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord, you're here, right? I mean, there's good fellowship and the word's going forth. I want to share with you personally, those of you who are without Christ, you are here today without a Savior. You realize that. You say, I don't, didn't think I needed a Savior. Maybe that's for religious people. No, if you're part of the human race, you're, you're a sinner. You've broken the law of God. You know you have. And the Spirit of God has a way of, of bringing that to you personally and convicting you and, and sh revealing to you how you've fallen short. And so without God and without hope and without forgiveness and without joy and without peace and without a hope of everlasting life, all you have now is a life from day to day. The time is ticking moment by moment until judgment day comes. And then you will see Jesus. This will be gone. And now we're at a point of judgment. I want to commend to you with all, all, of, all the effort I can, with the aid and the strength of the Holy Spirit, I want to commend unto you the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, as Lord, as King, and call you to come to Him. He's purchased peace. He's purchased forgiveness. He said it's finished. And you're here and you get to hear this good news of what Christ has done. He rose again on the third day. And here's what I would like to say to you. In your own heart, in your own mind, flee to Christ. Flee to the Savior. His arms to save are wide open. He's a God who delights in saving the worst of sinners. Take me aside and I'll tell you about my past life and you won't be surprised. He'll tell you he saves the worst of sinners. And if you find yourself as one of those worst, he embraces you with forgiveness if you come to him in faith. He does say leave your sins behind. Stop them with a willingness to stop your wicked ways. But come. Come. Bow your heart, your head, your mind, your, your thoughts to the Lordship of Christ and trust in Him. Say, I trust in you. I trust in your work. Be my work for eternal life that I might be a son of God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Father, we, we close. Lord, I, I feel in my soul that we've just touched on the depth of this passage. But Lord, we want to leave your word in your hand. And I would ask, even right now, you would take the words that were spoken, be heard as your words, not mine. The word of God to sinners. The word of God to saints. And I pray you'd apply it. Lord, for those of us who are in Christ, we pray that you would just flood our hearts this day with great joy, praise, and worship. Our Savior has risen from the dead. We have great hope that one day we will too will be raised from the dead. 
victoriously, but until then, give us a passion for souls. Give us a passion to share this good news with others. And may our worship be full of delight to you until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.